More thoughts today on the tempering of souls. Hey, welcome to another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot, and she called us to live to a higher standard each day. To not be satisfied with just throwing a little religion into life as a shallow substitute for what God wants for us. As the series continues in the coming weeks, we'll hear from family, friends, and others who were influenced by Elizabeth's life and her message. Today we continue our extended series on the life of Amy Carmichael. Today we'll hear part three and four of the tempering of souls as we think first of all about a steel blade and about the need for fire and ice. We'll be hearing today from wife, mother, and grandmother, and friend of Elizabeth, Kathy Gilbert, as she talks about her first impression and about a glad surrender. Also, Valerie Elliott Shepard has a thought for us on what Jim said about time management, that coming up later. First, though, it's part three in this look at the tempering of souls, as you think about steel blades, the need for fire and ice, and about the temptation of luxury. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says, and underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, talking with you again about the tempering of souls. Every one of us is living in a situation where it is possible to be tempered into a steel blade, strong, hard, elastic, for the Lord's use. But we have to be willing to submit to the fire and to the ice water, to endure hardship, as Paul put it, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. There isn't very much of the spirit of endurance and soldierhood in most of us Christians today, I don't think, I realize how easily I'm tempted by luxury, by soft things. Now, there's nothing wrong intrinsically with luxury and soft things, but what a terrible temptation it is for us to become lovers of luxury and lovers of softness. The unwillingness to endure hardness makes it impossible for us to be true soldiers of Jesus Christ. We're supposed to be taking up a cross and following him. Do we imagine that a cross will ever be comfortable? We're always so interested in doing what feels good, doing what feels comfortable. It's amazing to me how often I hear Christians use the phrase, do you feel comfortable with this? Well, very often I don't feel comfortable with the will of God, but that has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not I should do it. The Apostle Paul used this phrase in the beginning of one of his epistles, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. And I think he thought of that as a title of honor. In another place, he calls himself a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Amy Carmichael, the missionary to India that we've been talking about, longed for men for co-workers. She had been praying for years that the Lord would send her men who were like tempered steel. The Lord had given her little boys to take care of, boys who had been in danger of being used for homosexual purposes in connection with the Hindu temple worship of South India. 
and she needed men to be examples to them, to be leaders, to be brothers, to be fathers. And there were two young men, brothers from England, by the name of Webb Peplow. There was Godfrey Webb Peplow and Murray Webb Peplow, who was a physician, and she prayed that the Lord would give her these men. They had come to visit Donavour, and she began to pray with great longing, but she hardly dared to pray for one of them because he was on his way to China as a missionary. And then, in a most amazing way, the Lord brought him back to Donavour, and these two brothers were part of God's answer to Amy's prayer for strong men. Someone has said, manliness is not mere courage. It is the quality of soul which frankly accepts all conditions of human life and makes it a point of honor not to be dismayed or wearied by them. I'll read that again. Manliness is not mere courage. It is the quality of soul which frankly accepts all conditions of human life and makes it a point of honor not to be dismayed or wearied by them. Do you know some really manly men? Am I speaking to some truly manly men? It doesn't mean that you have to have a particular kind of build. It doesn't mean that you have to be over six feet tall or handsome or muscular. It does mean a willingness to accept the conditions of human life. Amy Carmichael spoke of that secret discipline which is appointed for every man and woman whose life is lived for others. No one escapes that discipline, she wrote, nor could wish to escape it, nor can any shelter another from it. And just as we have seen the bud of a flower close round the treasure within, folding its secret up, petal by petal, so we have seen the soul that is chosen to serve fold round its secret and hold it fast and cover it from the eyes of man. The petals of the soul are silence. Now, Amy Carmichael was very reticent and very careful not to draw attention to herself, so careful that she drove me crazy when I was trying to write her biography because I kept trying to read between the lines all the things that I wished she had told us about that she didn't. And I'm pretty sure that the secret discipline that she is referring to in this paragraph was singleness. I know that she had had at least one proposal, and she had given her life to the Lord to serve him as a single woman. She prayed that the Lord would send men and women who would be willing to be single, and not to make a big deal out of it. The soul that is chosen to serve folds round its secret and holds it fast and covers it from the eyes of man. The petals of the soul are silence. She did break her silence a little one time when late in life one of the Indian women who worked and lived most intimately with her asked why she had not chosen what she called the other life, meaning marriage. She told Neela, the Indian woman then, that a letter had come on the eve of her sailing for Japan. She didn't say who wrote it. She didn't say it was a proposal. She merely said that it looked towards what you call the other life. She waited quietly. 
Deep down in me, a voice seemed to be saying, no, 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 I have something different for you to do. She held to that word when her womanly heart longed for a man's love. One day in a cave in Arima, Japan, a day that she had spent praying with the Lord, and it was full of fear that day, fear of a lonely future. And it was as if the Lord brought to her mind then a verse from the Psalms, none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. Again, after she arrived in India, there was another proposal, or at least the overture to a proposal. She didn't give her friend Neela any details. She didn't even use the word proposal. But she said it was the last time that the other life pulled. She added it was not a question of giving up his service. It never had been that. And now what was, as others would have told me, such a good thing would have led out into wider opportunities than ever before had been mine. But it would have led out of India. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Shall I do this? And all I heard in answer was no, no, no. I have something different for you to do. And so the secret discipline of the single life was that which was appointed to Amy Carmichael. And I'm sure that the poem that she wrote must have had something to do with this particular secret discipline. O Prince of Glory, who didst bring thy sons to glory through thy cross, let me not shrink from suffering, reproach, or loss. The dust of words would smother me, be all to me anathema that turns me from Gethsemane and Golgotha. And these are the lines that I particularly love and had meant so much to me during my many long single years. If thy dear home be fuller, Lord, for that a little emptier my house on earth, what rich reward that guerdon were. And by the borders of my day the river of thy pleasure flows, the flowers that blossom by the way, who loves thee knows. Let me repeat the lines that I love the most. If thy dear home be fuller, Lord, for that a little emptier my house on earth, what rich reward. Then there was a couple who were engaged. The man had arrived in India before his fiancée, and for various reasons the fiancée was not able to come out nearly as soon as she expected to. Illness and family problems prevented it. I read a good many letters that Amy Carmichael wrote to that woman. This is one of them. The Lord, who is your dearest of all, can satisfy. He can, he will. But he understands, and I do, those fierce aches for Jay. I am quite sure that he has you both in his most tender hands, so I am not anxious. She was told that men could not go without sexual satisfaction. Not that Amy Carmichael ever used a word like sexual, but certainly that was what they meant. Indian men cannot go without it. Maybe Englishmen can, they said. 
She wrote, In our spiritual position towards our Lord and in his enabling power towards us, there is no difference between East and West. So it follows that if for Christ's sake and for the sake of souls for whom he died, any one of us, man or woman, gives up what he or she would naturally desire, a home of our own, the resources of his power flow equally to each. To say there is a difference is to say that his inspired word is not true, and that is a serious position to take. But they objected, it's contrary to nature. Yes, it is, she said, but look at the plain. It is contrary to nature for tons of metal to rise above the earth and soar like a bird. What makes it possible? The presence of a power within which enables it to fly by its speed and pressure against the air. So with us, it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Part 19 of a 24-part series on the life of Amy Carmichael. We'll again be thinking about the tempering of souls in just a little bit. First, though, we'll hear from wife, mother, grandmother, and friend of Elizabeth, Kathy Gilbert. She'll talk about a glad surrender and about her first impression of Elizabeth. Now, my first impression of Elizabeth, the first time I heard her was at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Kay Smith, Pastor Chuck's wife, loved Elizabeth, and she couldn't wait to have Elizabeth come and speak. So one Friday morning, it was March 1st, 1991, when I, along with 2,000 other women, were in the sanctuary at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and we heard Elizabeth speak. It was my very first time. She did a two-part series called The Glad Surrender, and it absolutely transformed my life. It was like leaping out of my chair for joy because finally I heard a woman articulating clearly and powerfully her own love and reverence for God and his word that matched my own longing for God. And at that time, at those two message series that she spoke on, she did that comparison to Eve and Mary that was absolutely transforming. And I did not want to be like the fallen Eve. I wanted to be like the transformed Mary. I fell in love with Elizabeth. I fell in love with her and wanted to buy and did buy every book that she published, whether in print or out. And that began my journey of being discipled by her. A friend of Elizabeth, Kathy Gilbert. Later on, we'll hear from Valerie Elliott Shepherd as she talks about Jim Elliott's quote related to time management. That's uh, just about a minute long, so we'll have that later. First, though, we continue the thoughts on the tempering of souls. What will it take for us to be truly usable in the Lord's service? And Elizabeth will talk about a letter that she received about the blessing of caring for needy parents. We've been using the metaphor of a steel blade, which in order to be hard and elastic, has to be tempered in hot fires and icy water. In my last talk, the subject was one of the ways in which we may be disciplined, singleness. And I wanted to read to you what Amy Carmichael wrote to a younger worker. Do I regret now that for your sake I chose to do without that which nature desires, what was pressed upon me, so that I might serve without distraction, as Paul puts it? No, indeed, I do not. You will never regret it, 
an old missionary said to our sisters of the common life, and to those who by God's grace are, and to those who will be brothers of the common life, I say the same. You will go through hard days, but you will never regret it. You will never regret it. And I can add my testimony to Amy Carmichael's as well. I've been single much longer than I've been married. And Jim Elliott and I waited five and a half years for each other with no guarantee whatsoever that God was going to bring us together as husband and wife. Each of us had committed ourselves to the will of God, whatever that might be, marriage or singleness. I don't suppose I ever thought at that time of widowhood, but God's will has included for me widowhood not once but twice. It's all part of the tempering of the blade. If I'm going to be usable in God's hand to do the things that God has called me to do, then the blade is going to have to be tempered, and it's going to take some hot fires and some icy water. I had a letter from a woman who was telling me about the privilege of caring for her senile parents. It was a beautiful letter telling how, because she had committed herself to God for them, God had given her such joy that when she would go over to their house and do the laundry and go out and buy the groceries and come back and put the groceries away and cook a meal for them and clean the house, she said, I found myself actually wanting to do more. She said, last night I went to their house, vacuumed, scrubbed the bathroom, brought home the laundry, and I wanted to do more. There is joy in simple, humble service. But it's not the job itself that gives us joy. It's the offering of that job to Jesus Christ. It's not singleness in itself that's going to make any man or woman happy. But it is the offering up of the loneliness that that singleness involves that can be transformed into joy. I keep talking about our gateway to joy. It is the very hardest things in our lives that God wants to transform into the greatest joy if we're willing to stoop and go through that little gateway of humility and willingness to say, Lord, your will, not mine be done. I wanted to make a comparison between that woman's letter, the joy that she found in simple, humble service, with something that I read recently in a magazine, you know, one of those very rare days in my year when I was in the beauty parlor. I always take a long reading material, but on this occasion I managed to finish all the reading material that I'd taken along, so I picked up one of those dreadful magazines that they usually have there, and I read an article on Rita Hayworth. What a pitiful story. In speaking of her lifetime as a movie star, she said this, It's never what I wanted, ever. All I ever wanted was just what everybody else wants, you know, to be loved. And Orson Welles said she never got a moment's pleasure out of being a famous movie star. Orson Welles, you may remember, was Rita Hayworth's husband at one point. She never got a moment's pleasure out of being a famous movie star. It gave her nothing, nothing. She didn't like being Rita Hayworth. Her biographer wrote, 
tormented by the nagging fear that at any moment she would be exposed and the terrible truth about her inadequacies and unworthiness would be known by all. Her greatest fear was that she would be stigmatized as a bad mother. It became a reality when a California court took protective custody of her two children. Toward the end of her life, she began to forget her lines. She fell into alcoholism. There were public episodes of violence. She got Alzheimer's disease. She became totally incompetent and had emotional fits which cost her her work and her friendships. She was pursued by the lustful glint in the eye of the beholder. But she said, it's never what I wanted, ever. All I ever wanted was just what everybody else wants, you know, to be loved. Well, you and I are loved with an everlasting love. Poor Rita Hayworth didn't know that. She didn't know about the everlasting arms. I think of the comparison of her life with Amy Carmichael's, a life totally laid down for the sake of others. Amy Carmichael wanted tempered souls, but she said, I don't want any milk biscuits. She didn't want everybody cut with the same cookie cutter. She wanted soldiers. And I had the tremendous privilege of meeting some of those soldiers whom Amy Carmichael had trained. To one who was coming to be a new recruit in Donavour, Amy wrote this, We follow a stripped and crucified Savior. Those words go very deep. They touch everything. Motives, purposes, decisions, everything. Let them be with you as you prepare your spirit for the new life. Dear, you are coming to a battlefield. You cannot spend too much time with him alone. The keys of the powers of the world to come are not turned by careless fingers. So few are willing to pay the price of the knowledge of God. They play through life, even Christian life, even missionary life. And then she said, Here I have stopped. Am I asking far too much? Does it sound too stern, too earnest, I want to be sure you understand. The last group came out rather quickly, and I had not time to make all this plain. I need not say anything about what people call the other side, the side of life that is full of joy and fun. We have any amount of that, and I don't call it the other side at all. It's just part of the whole. I had the privilege, when I was preparing Amy Carmichael's biography, A Chance to Die, of meeting one of those recruits that had come out as a young woman to work with Amy Carmichael. What a woman she was. And she told me this. Her name was Dr. May Pohl, P-O-W-E-L-L. When she arrived for the first time in Donavour, she was taken to the bungalow to meet Amma in her room. There was a lightness, brightness, and joy about her. She was loving, lovely, and warm. Not much over five feet, I suspect, with gray hair wearing a blue sari. She had a twinkle and a gentle sense of humor. In the first few minutes of greeting, Amma nailed her with the question, Do you know your Bible well? No, was the answer, and I thought to myself, that's it. Next ship back. But I was allowed to stay. I had a visit with Dr. Pohl. She was in her late 80s, living alone in a tiny little room in England. Cheerful, spry, bright as a bird, no nonsense. 
She answered my questions, looking me straight in the eye with her piercing dark eyes. The room was spartan in the extreme, a narrow iron cot, one small shelf of books, half of which were Amy Carmichael's, a little tiny table, of course an electric tea kettle, and she fixed tea for me and we sat there and had tea and biscuits while she told me about Amy Carmichael. I remember when I walked in the front door, she said, so you're Elizabeth. I said, yes. Her first question was, do you know the term loo? Loo, of course, is the word for the bathroom. Here's the loo. There will be tea at the top of the stairs. And she left me. I remember the sparkle in her eyes. She was a tempered soul. I beg you, mothers and fathers, don't shelter your children from all the fire and ice. Headaches, infections, toothaches, little things like that, teach them courage. Be sympathetic, do what you can to alleviate their pain when it's real physical pain, but don't shelter them from all the troubles and trials of life. Amy Carmichael had her share of headaches and infections and toothaches. She got to the point where she couldn't get around the compound because it was so big on foot, and so she would ride a tricycle. She tried for years to kiss each individual child goodnight, or at least see every face every day. But Dr. Pohl, who became her personal physician, said, Amma, do go back to your room. And one time Amy's reply to that was, Get thee behind me, Satan. She was a woman with a soldier spirit. One of her poems is called Make Us Thy Mountaineers. She wanted to be a soldier a mountaineer, a laborer for Jesus Christ. Are you that sort of a Christian? Does the cross draw you or repel you? Do you live a crucified life or do you live a life of selfishness? All of us are just pilgrims on the same journey. May he give us grace to take up that cross and follow. The fourth in our look at the tempering of souls, this is part 20 in a 24-part series on the life of Amy Carmichael. Well, before we go, we're going to hear about a minute-long comment from Valerie Elliott Shepard. She'll be talking about her dad, Jim, and what he thought about time management. Oh, yeah, that's in my father's uh, journal. Be on guard, oh my soul of complicating your environment so that you have neither time nor room for growth. In other words, take time to meditate on God's word. Don't spend so much time on worldly things and TV and internet, of course, takes way much more time than it should because it, it interrupts our Bible reading or our prayer times. And I'm still learning that. I'm still trying to say no to all of the dings, all of the uh, notifications on the phone. So it's, it's from his journal, Be On Guard, O oh My Soul, of Complicating Your Environment So That You Have Neither Time Nor Room for Growth. That was Valerie Elliott Shepard. Well, speaking of time management, we're just about out of time, but let me thank you for letting us come into your home, maybe into your office, or maybe uh, you took a walk and brought us along. Well, thank you. However we found you today, it's good to have you listening each week. On behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation 
In cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you to check out all the resources available at elizabethelliot.org. Easy to remember, isn't it? Elizabeth is spelled with an S, by the way. elizabethelliot.org. Lectures, talks, devotionals, and more. Check it out. We earlier were thinking about time management. Maybe you could take a few minutes and leave us a review. Thanks. Well, until next time, may God remind you daily you're loved with what? Yeah, with an everlasting love. And underneath, that's right, the everlasting arms. <laughs>